This week on Life and Faith. One of the things about war is it gives a, an opportunity for psychopaths to come to the fore and, and, and not be checked. So you do have some people who are frankly at the very end of a spectrum. But worse than that, more important than that, there's a, there's a much larger group of people who do terrible things, who are, doing, who are perfectly normal. They're, they're, they're just like you and me. Um, you know, we really, we really don't like to imagine that. We have entered into an amusing ourselves to death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me. If there is God, God's supposed to be free. I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the Isa army coming behind us. I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. <laughs> Sonny said nothing's too good for the worker, nothing. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. Now, this week we mark 75 years since the official end of World War II. But actually, we don't really need an excuse to talk about the war, do we, Natasha? Yeah, no, it seems like this is a bit of history that we never tire of looking back on, talking about, telling stories about. Yeah, it is an endless supply of things to talk about. And the, the title for today's episode, Do Mention the War, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the genius of faulty towers, people my age can kind of quote verbatim, perhaps tediously, but it plays on a, a famous episode of that show. She's in the hospital, you silly girl. Yes, call her there. I can't. I've got too much to do. Listen, don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it all right. So, <laughs> it's all forgotten now, and let's hear no more about it. So that's two egg mayonnaise, a prawn Goebbels, a Herman Goring, and four colded salads. Now, wait a minute. I got a bit confused here. Sorry, I got a bit confused because everyone keeps mentioning the war. So could you... What's the matter? It's all right. Is there something wrong? Will you stop talking about the war? Me? You started it? We did not start it. Yes, you did. You invaded Poland. <laughs> Faulty Towers was made in 1975. And in the years since, you could say that mentioning the war has become something that we do constantly. We do it in best-selling novels and blockbuster movies. Yeah, we do. We do it in public debates about nationalism and democracy and COVID and just about anything, actually. And there's even Godwin's Law, which is a semi-tongue-in-cheek rule you might have heard of, which states that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. <laughs> now, Natasha, you, you have some theories about why we're so obsessed with this war. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a while. I mean, I love World War II stories um, and I think it's such a rich vein for writers to tap into. There are so many different angles that you can take, um, but I think it's actually become a kind of mythology for us in Western culture at least. It's like our go-to good and evil story, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, that we, that we think of this as the last good war um, or maybe even the only good war that we have to look back on where it was you know, so clearly good guys, bad guys, it was worth fighting um, and it was a definitive victory for the good guys. Yeah, I want to say that's true. 
though, of course, and this is partly what we're getting at today, real history and real people, it's always more complicated than that. Yes. I mean, did I, have I, did I ever tell you about the dream that I had where I interviewed Hitler for Life and Faith? No, you haven't told me about that. <laughs> what, what was that about? It was like my, my very first year working for CPX. Um, and I mean, maybe I found like the recordings are a bit stressful. Mm. And I was also reading a biography of the Mitford sisters, um, a couple of whom they were this, you know, British family. And a couple of the sisters were actually really good friends with Hitler. Um, and so it kind of painted this picture of them kind of hanging out with him. And I think I just found it really bizarre to think of him as a real person who hung out with friends. And so I think it's in that context that I had this dream where it was somehow pre-war and we didn't really know yet how awful Hitler was. Mm. Um, And I kind of came across him in some hotel or something and he agreed to be interviewed for Life and Faith. (laughs) Well, everyone wants to be on Life and Faith. (laughs) Right. And it was like this coup because, you know, he's kind of this public figure and people are trying to figure him out. Um, And then it didn't record like we had this whole interview and the the recording (laughs) didn't work and I was so upset. We're going to book you in for a session on the psychologist couch It is a little disturbing. Uh, But Um, you have had a real conversation, though, about the war with an historian. (laughs) His name is Keith Lowe. Tell us about that. Yeah, so last year I read... Keith Lowe's book. It's called uh, The Fear and the Freedom, Why the Second World War Still Matters. And it's amazing. I loved it. Uh, So I really wanted to talk to him about all this, about uh, the place that this particular history holds for us as a culture. Um, So in this conversation, we cover everything from evil and heroism to Brexit and COVID to the religious revival that happened after World War II. Here's that conversation. Well, this is kind of a, an important moment for you right now. It's now 75 years, the anniversary of the end of the war. But if anything, it seems like we're getting more obsessed, not less obsessed with this conflict. Um, would you agree with that? And if so, like, why do you think that is? What's so fascinating about it to us? I do agree with that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think part of the reason we're getting obsessed with it is, is simply because 75 years on, you know, the generation who lived through the war are slipping away. So, you know, we're, we're doing whatever we can to sort of clutch hold of that generation. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want them to go. Uh, and we, we're trying to sort of remember all the things they went through, the things which were so important to the formation of our world uh, today. So there's that. But also, I think, you know, even after that generation has left us, you know, there will still be a very strong sort of determination to keep hold of these memories because I, I think there are all kinds of sort of sociological and, and psychological reasons why they're really important to us. We don't want to let them go. Mm. So can you unpack a few of those kind of like sociologically what you think is going on for us when we keep telling and retelling these stories? Well, I, I think we... Uh... We, we use the Second World War as a kind of lens for whatever it is that's most important to us at the moment. Uh, and, and then we sort of challenge, channel it through this sort of lens of the, the Second World War. So, for example, here in Britain, we had all this Brexit stuff going on uh, for years now. Still haven't finished with it. 
It's been eclipsed a little of late. It has been eclipsed. <laughs> but, you know, even with the coronavirus, the same thing has happened. We, we uh, mm. you know, with, with Brexit, we've suddenly uh, we, we rediscovered ourselves as a nation and started thinking, oh, Britain used to stand alone during the Second World War and we can do it again as a, as a independent Brexit nation. Uh, now, uh, with the coronavirus, people were saying, oh, you know, we, we've been through crises like this before. Remember 1940? It's the same blitz spirit, you know, Britain all pulling together to fight the virus. We just used the Second World War as a sort of symbol to try and coalesce around, to try and give us some kind of feeling of unity, some feeling of togetherness in order to, you know, fight through whatever crisis it is that we happen to be going through at the moment. Mm. You, um, I'm going to quote you to yourself now. Um, you say the myths and downright lies we have told ourselves over the decades since the Second World War are just as important in forming our world as the truths ever were. Can you give us an example of that? Like, what do we believe about this war that just ain't so? I mean, when it comes to the the sort of downright lies, there are some very specific details that people will choose to believe rather than face the truth. Uh, but, but that's quite a specific thing. I don't want to get into those. But more importantly, there's a sort of, there is a sort of general fudging of the truth that we, uh, that we all indulge in. You know, even historians indulge in, which is mostly around trying to sort of create a mythological view of our, our, our past. Um, so, you know, we in the West... Australians, British people, Americans, we, we like to think we're the heroes of the war. And if you're the hero, you're the hero. You know, you can't do anything wrong. So wh whenever you start talking about various war crimes or or maybe war crimes is too strong, but things that we didn't necessarily do in, a, in an ethical way, uh, people get very upset and say, no, that wasn't the case. We're, we're not going to talk about that. We were the heroes. Uh, you get the same thing with with countries who believe themselves as sort of the martyrs of the war. Your your Polands and Frances and uh, Italy's you know, Italy's a classic example. They see themselves as martyrs of the war, but you know they were <laughs> they were on oh, the same side as uh, as as yeah. Germany for a lot of it. So it's the fudging of the truth which is much more important uh, than the actual mm. lies. Uh, lies are it's easy to refute a lie. You just show them the document. Uh, but mythology is more difficult to kind of uh, get to grips with, I think. Well, and we don't necessarily want to. Well, exactly, exactly. I, I, I love to think of Britain as the hero nation, and and there is truth in it. You know, it's not wrong. It's just not the whole truth. There are other mm. parts of things we did that we we don't remember as well. We sort of just put to a corner of our mind and pretend isn't there. Mm. I'd like to talk about evil. You know, it seems to me, like, as a culture, we're very into moral complexity. You know, we're all about the flawed protagonist and understanding the criminal mind and so on. But it feels like when we come to World War II and when we come to Nazis, it's like, nope, they're just, you know, like, barely even human. Like, they could be orcs, you know. It's just good versus evil, this titanic struggle. There's nothing redeeming about them. Um, do you feel as though like kind of we need that representation of pure evil or like what are we missing when we think of that war that way? Well, I mean, it sort of goes back to, well, it's, it's comforting, isn't it? It's comforting to think that there is, is it? 
It's well, scary. Well, I mean, it? it is kind of comforting because if you've got an absolute evil, then and you're on the right, you're on the other side. You must be related to the absolute good, so that that makes you feel good about yourself. Uh, and you don't like to think of the this sort of these people who did these, frankly, evil deeds. I mean, there, there's no doubt about the the fact that the things that they did were evil. But if you if you just assume that they are monsters then you don't ever have to put yourself in that position and you don't you don't have to imagine that you know given the right circumstances you yourself might act in something in a, in a way which might be similar to that and that's not a comfortable thought so we just push it away we say no those are monsters we're we're the good people we would we would never do that so that's what i mean when i say that it's comforting um but you're right you know that uh this idea of um Nazis being, or, or even the sort of Japanese military, um, the same, being the sort of absolute evil. That's something which was born during the war itself. You know, in, in order to galvanize a, a people to fight together, to work together, to make the sacrifices you have to make. That, that's what always happens in war. You, you, you make the enemy into personification of evil. Usually after a war is finished, that kind of begins to peter out and people begin to see the human side of the enemy. But of course, after the Second World War and the concentration camps were revealed and so on, um, you know, that, that, that process wasn't able to take place. We saw, uh, hang on a sec, these people really were evil. Yeah. And, and so that, that's Even worse kind of, than we thought. Yeah, exactly. Even worse than we thought. So... Um, so that perpetuated it down the, the years in a way which hasn't happened with other wars in the same way. This is Life and Faith and Natasha's having a conversation with historian Keith Lowe about World War II and how it gives us a space to think about good and evil or to avoid thinking about it properly. So having dwelt in this history for quite a long time. Um, like what's your personal take on the evil of it? Like, do you believe in something called evil? What do you make of, you know, is it ordinary people doing these unthinkable things? There are all kinds of people doing these unthinkable things. I mean, you, you one of the things about war is it gives a, an opportunity for psychopaths to come to the fore and, and, and not be checked. So you do have some people who are, frankly, at, the, at the, the very end of a spectrum. But worse than that, more important than that, there's a, there's a much larger group of people who do terrible things, who are, doing, who are perfectly normal. They're, they're just like you and me. And, you know, we, really, we really don't like to imagine that. In fact, there are, there are books that have been written, of studies that have been made which are you know very carefully documented showing that these are just ordinary people who are you know start by just following orders and and they just go down this path and then they don't know how to get out and um and then there are those other books who refuse to do you know where they refuse to believe that and say no no it's about good and evil um and the, the books which say it's about good and evil tend to be much more successful by the way than the ones that say hang on a sec it's more it's more complicated but uh I mean, my belief is that it's it's that's what makes my work so challenging, and and personally challenging, um, and possibly challenging for the reader too. I don't know. Um, is 
is the thought that these are things that you know I I I I might find myself if I were if I were this guy this uh, I mean I in the book the most recent book I read the fear in the feed of freedom there's a story of a Japanese doctor who who dissected people alive you know that's you would imagine this is the most evil man but he came to realize this in later years and really really repented <laughs> and uh, and that's a really human story you know, he was an ordinary man who was led down the a, a, a horrific path by his own family by his society by himself and uh there's there's no saying that that couldn't have been me if i were in if i grew up in his situation so and mm. and to think that you're beyond that is quite arrogant i think uh yeah that's a, and that's a difficult thought it's a, it's not comfortable <laughs> to go down yeah, that route yeah i thought that was one of the most yeah chilling and amazing chapters of the book i mean a lot of it is quite shocking but um to find someone who could do those things and then later experience them the way that we experience them like as looking back going oh yes that was evil shed so much more light than oh there are the evil ones and then there were the you know good people caught up in it yeah um, i mean for every man so like really him there are there it. are uh, another dozen uh, war criminals who refuse to go there who yeah won't even think about it you know um so he was quite a rare individual in that he fully confronted what he did and and was willing to admit it before the whole world and try to do something about it to try and get people to open their eyes yeah including his fellow citizens who really didn't want to right i mean another thing that i found um i didn't really know about and i was quite shocked by in the book was about um, how Holocaust survivors were treated. You know, we kind of, the way that we talk about the Holocaust now, and it's almost synonymous with the war, and um, we think of it as kind of the pinnacle of pure evil and pure suffering in our kind of cultural imagination. And we, you know, I think rightly pay honour and respect to survivors of the Holocaust and to victims, but that that actually wasn't the case straight after the war and for some time. Um, can you sketch that picture in a little bit? You know, how were survivors treated and how did that change? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, part of the problem was there was uh, there was a fair bit of ignorance about um, what happened uh, during and after the war. So um, I think the example I used in a previous book was uh, uh, of Holocaust survivors returning to Holland um, and of course, Holland at the end of the war had suffered a horrendous famine. You know, there were people starving throughout the country. And then you have these Holocaust survivors arriving with shaved heads uh, um, from the concentration camps. And um, of course, a lot of the people who had shaved heads were the women who had slept with German soldiers. So you had women coming back from concentration camps being confused for collaborators and getting beaten up, you know, so there was that going on but also people refused to believe that um life could possibly have been worse for them than it was in holland you know uh uh they, they people would say things like uh, well you were away in germany you had all the food not realizing they were a, a, a diet of you know, 400 calories a day they they didn't look like they were dining out no but then you know actually a, a, a lot of them had 
been sort of rehabilitated a bit yeah, before they sure. got so they they'd filled out a little uh, under mm. allied care and then returned home to suddenly have all this sort of antagonism people being sort of uh, quite uh almost like they envied them for their experience you know rather than than pitying them so and because they were in such a tiny minority there was just no point in trying to fight against this huge the, the sort of main narrative of the country, which is we all suffered together and it was, you know, we were all as one. You you can't say, well, actually, you know, things were a bit worse for me. Um, so they just shut up. They didn't talk about it for years, for decades, because it was just easier. And the same thing happened in France. The same thing happened in all, all kinds of places. Um, survivors coming to Britain, to America, to Australia quite often found it easier just not to talk about their experiences because people didn't really understand. They couldn't understand. So there's no point in talking about it. And uh, so, you know, it was kind of brushed under the carpet, really. This idea of what we today know as the Holocaust didn't really become part of our sort of full consciousness until the 60s, 70s, 80s, really. Um, and even in Israel, right, it wasn't... Even in Israel, exactly, exactly. You know, there there was, there were attitudes in Israel where you know Jews would say, well, "How come you didn't fight back?" You know, if if I had been there, I would have fought against this. I wouldn't have gone. The the phrase they used was like a lamb to the slaughter. So, you know, imagine hearing that. N not only have you gone through all this trauma, but you're also a coward. It, mm. How must that make you feel? So best just to shut up. Don't talk about it. That's what so yeah. many people did. It's, do you think there's something in, like, it's not just the histories, but the novels now. Um, so many, you know, novels and movies about these kinds of stories over and over. Um, something about memory and how if we can only kind of tell these stories, whether fictional or, you know, a particular historical story, that that's in some way making it up to like some somehow linked in with justice you know it can't possibly help any victims now for us to remember their stories and what they went through do you think there's kind of a I don't know a sacredness or a there's almost a kind of civic religious element to that where if we can only recuperate it that that brings about some kind of justice by memory and honor I, I think the second world war was a, an, a, a huge event which which affected the whole world you know it's not only the people who lived through it who were affected by it um you know, there are all sorts of studies into generational trauma which i could go into uh, where the, the sort of children and grandchildren of people who suffered traumas like the holocaust um also sort of show all kinds of symptoms themselves of that trauma but I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about countries that weren't even involved in the war are still affected by it. This is a sort of global trauma. And on, on a global level, we're still processing that trauma. We will continue processing it. You know, you, these things don't go away. They sort of soften a bit in our memory, maybe, but but they will always be there. Mm. So I, I think it, it's it's a part of us, whether we whether we want it to be or not whether we like it or not. And and as a consequence, it will come out in all kinds of ways, in our literature, in our art, in our TV programmes, whatever, whatever it may be. 
Um, there's, I mean, we're really scratching the surface of what you cover in the book, which just has such a um, scope to it. Is there maybe one particular story or area of life or of the world where um, the world today has been shaped by World War II that you kind of wish people understood or that we kind of don't know about or under, underestimate? Can you pick one? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a difficult one. There's so many. <laughs> I mean, the, the obvious example is is the the cities that we live in in Europe are, are the, they only look the way they do because of they were all erased <laughs> in uh, 1945 and they've been rebuilt since. Um, but that's kind of an obvious one. I, I think the psychological point, you know, on a global level, if you look at all our global institutions, the you know, United Nations, the European Union, the World Bank, the IMF, you know, all these institutions were created on the back of the Second World War. It, it was this sort of uh, the idea of what nationalism had done to create this kind of trauma. I mean, everybody loves their nation, but when it's taken to the extremes that it was taken to between 1939 and 1945, that's what happens. And as a kind of antidote, we created all these these institutions to try and put a lid on uh, the, the excesses of national feeling. And I kind of feel that lid is coming off a little bit these days. Uh, it's just important to remember that, uh, you know, there's a balance that has to be kept there. Love your nation, but also keep a lid on the, the people who are going to take it too far. Yeah. Are you pessimistic about that as a World War II historian? Does, does like, uh, not, the current not, kind not, of not yet. fascism? <laughs> okay. Not really. I mean, you know, there's a long way to go before, uh, you know, we, we don't have a Hitler or a Mussolini um, or a Hirohito um, sort of knocking on our door at the moment. Well, not one with any power, anyway. And S certainly some people continue. draw parallels between... Well, yeah, people like to draw parallels. But, you know, like I said, we have these institutions which were set up in order to to to, to keep a lid on these things. And they, they are, at the moment, holding strong and keeping up keeping the balance i mean we're, we are, we're doing our best to undermine them i have to say but <laughs> but uh you know they the balance is still there and i i think that's a hopeful thing rather than a something to feel pessimistic about just yet i'm glad to hear it <laughs> um can i ask you to say something about the revival of religious belief after 1945 um what did that look like and what do you make of it why does that happen that is really fascinating. That's that's one of the chapters I that opened my eyes actually more than more than any others when I was writing the book. Um, you know, uh, there, there's been a decline in religious belief uh, from the sort of 19th century onwards, uh, but after the Second World War, there's there's a sudden spike. You know, people start going back to church. People start having religious weddings, christenings. Uh, it's not only a Christian church, by the way. It's you know, it's also in Judaism. Um, it's going on there too. Um, and I, there's something about this huge event. The Second World War brought the world back together again in a way which historically religion has always done. You know, part, 
it's one of the sort of big sociology of religion questions, isn't it? The um, the idea that religion is a is a unifying force for society. Uh, that's what, and some people argue that's what it's there for. Well, if that's dropping off, the Second World War kind of did the same thing. You know, it brought the whole world together in in a similar way. We all had a common purpose during the Second World War. Nineteen forty five comes along that common purpose is suddenly gone. So what do we do now? And people have that same feeling, that same longing uh, for something bigger than themselves. And that brings them back to religion in great numbers. Um, and, and, and it really continues. You know, it's not only religion, by the way, it's also all kinds of societies from bowling clubs and, and I don't know, poker clubs all the way through to churches and synagogues and so on mm. people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves they want to be a part of a community because equally it could and i'm sure for some people did go this horrific cataclysm that happened how can anyone believe in god after oh, that well there was a lot of that too yeah absolutely and and there were there were people who 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 um completely rejected religion and turned to other things instead but sort of the important thing is that they did turn to other things. It wasn't a sort of, it wasn't the same sort of fragmentation of society with no, nobody, sort of people sort of, uh, uh, you know, atomized in the way that they are becoming more and more today. Uh, they turned from religion to something else which gave them a, a place, a part uh, of a, a group or a society or, you know, like I said, all these global incidents, United Nations and so on. So there's a big sort of humanist uh, uh, humanist movement start, uh, took off after the Second World War. There was the, the 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 world government movement, which was really strong for twenty years after the war, um, who wanted to abolish the mm. UN and create a, a a global government instead. So these these kind of things were, mm, which mostly sounds terrifying, actually. Well, <laughs> yeah, it could, it could go one of two ways, couldn't it? It could be glorious or terrifying, <laughs> yeah. or, or both at once. You know. <laughs> I feel as though that kind of brings us back to COVID, right? And um, this idea of something bringing the world together or not. Um, and there's been a lot of talk, not just in Britain, but of this pandemic being our generation's World War II. Um, as, a, as a historian of the period, when you hear that kind of thing, do you kind of get irritated? Are you like, mm, that's not a good fit? Or are you like, yeah, that makes sense for all these reasons? Uh, well, both simultaneously is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, the anal retentive part of me uh, uh, says, no, that's complete nonsense. This is COVID and World War II, complete. That, that, what are you comparing? Um, <laughs> but then on a sort of, I don't know, on a more esoteric level yeah absolutely there are very few events in our lifetimes which will which ev the whole world recognizes simultaneously and this is one of them we're living through now um you know the last one was probably i don't know 9 11 or something they, they don't come around very often um and when they do i think we should try and make of them the best that we can you know use this moment to to bring us all together and do something positive.
You've been listening to Life and Faith from Centre for Public Christianity. This episode was produced, as it is each week, by Anthea Godsmark. Keith Lowe's book that we reference here, one of many he's written, is called The Fear and the Freedom, Why the Second World War Still Matters. And if you have more appetite for thinking through how the war functions for us, what social and even religious purposes it serves in our collective imagination, Natasha has been writing about this for ABC Religion and Ethics. The link to her article is in the show notes. Next week. Definitions of human nature affect our hopes. Um, They affect uh, how we build society. And um, they affect who counts as human um, when we think through things like human rights or human dignity. Um, So there are really far-reaching effects um, for many aspects of our life together uh, in that sort of big question, what does it mean to be human?